Hello and welcome once again to Filmonomics as Slated. This is the podcast series that examines the film industry through the telescope of those who best understand the mysterious forces that can shape filmmaking. Now, just as with Solar Eclipse, we try not to get blindsided by looking directly at the artistic heart of cinema or by reading too much into those periodic flares of box office success. Instead, we peer at cinema's industrial rim to see what we can infer about filmmaking's governing principles and business mechanics. Cinema shouldn't need to operate as much in the long shadows. I'm Colin Brown, your podcast host of the series, and my guest for this week's episode is as well positioned as anyone to shed light on one of film's most elemental concerns, turning scripts into successful films and writing careers. He's John Zazerny, a Vancouver-born executive who presides over film and TV production at Los Angeles-based Bellevue Productions, and also heads the company's literary management division, working alongside Jeff Portnoy. Together, they've already created something of a writer's hothouse. Bellevue had four scripts on the 2015 blacklist, and another six on the 2016 blacklist, including the top-ranked script of last year, Blonde Ambition, a biopic about Madonna's first album that is now being produced as a film alongside Michael DeLuca and Rat Pack Entertainment. As someone who works with a stable of talented writers to create market-ready screenplays, John knows the real deals when he sees, hears, and reads them. There are reams of advice out there on how to craft a commercial screenplay. Budding career writers are counseled to make sure that their scripts are built around one terrific role for a movie star, that those scripts fit easily into recognizable genre, and that they all can be made for a price, that Hollywood euphemism for as low a budget as humanly possible. But as you'll hear later in this podcast, John has a much wider angle view on building a career, starting with the knowledge that writing success is more than just a question of the words on a page. A lot of people write scripts as a hobby, and then you were like, oh, well, do you want to make this a career? They're like, oh, yeah, but they don't really have the drive in it. They have one idea in them, essentially. And you're looking for someone who has multiple ideas, who has a clear vision of their career. And, you know, that's, that's rarer than you would think. You know, a lot of people are kind of sometimes one and done. So then you can kind of tell that when you meet them in the room, and you're like, no, this is not a person I can build a career with. John is somewhat unusual for a literary manager in that he didn't move into producing after starting out in management and script development. It happened the other way around. He was a producer first, and before that, a screenwriter himself, before realizing early on that he was better generating ideas for other screenwriters than being a diligent screenwriter himself. Teaming up with his brother Andrew, a graphic designer, he created Bellevue as a hybrid production company. The initial plan was to both develop a slate of commercial film concepts, as well as design logos, title sequences, and even rip reels to demonstrate the look and feel of a project being pitched. Bellevue got one film made in 2015, a $1 million paranormal horror story called Always Watching, that was released by Gravitas. Always Watching, the screenplay was by Ian Shaw. After seeing how John's collaborative skills had also helped set up two of his other screenplays, Christo and Capsule, Ian prodded John into considering a career as a literary manager. He did just that, and last year, four of Bellevue's clients had movies made, while others landed several TV shows. This year, the company has already been involved in two high-profile sales of spec scripts. That's industry talk for those unsolicited speculative screenplays that are written in the hope of having that script optioned and eventually purchased by a producer, production company, or studio. 
one of those spec buys was for another Ian Shaw project, Infinite, about a schizophrenic who discovers his hallucinations are actually memories of past lives that he can access, as well as the skills he possessed in those time periods. The other spec sale was the Keeper of the Diary, about the heroic efforts to get Anne Frank's diary published before she perished in the Holocaust. Written by Sam Franco and Evan Kilgore, the screenplay was snapped up by Fox Searchlight, which paid a high six-figure sum to beat out rival bidders, including Paramount, Amblin and Studio Canal. As a general rule, if a project is a client's idea, then Bellevue will not end up as a producer of it. But if Bellevue originated the idea, as was the case with Infinite, which was based on a book that John optioned and then brought to Ian, the company will assume a producer's credit. Hearing how John straddles these two worlds, I started out by asking him how he viewed the whole business of managing writers' careers, and what it takes to nurture other people's creative careers, as opposed to focusing just on one's own. You know, the simple answer is, when you start as a manager, it's kind of like you're a farmer and you've got this land, and the land is empty. So you got to plant the crops. Jeff and I have a very high level of quality control, and so, you know, it's pretty often that we don't, don't take scripts out. I would say six months is the least amount of time it takes to develop a script and get it into kind of shape where it's ready for the marketplace. But things can take nine months, they can take a year, you know, um, uh, Infinite, which we just sold to Paramount, that took a number of years. I would say the reason why 2016 was a, a bigger year than 2015 was simply because, you know, I walked into management with with almost no clients, and it took a while for those clients to start generating content. We wanted to make sure that when we took stuff out, you know, it was very, it was good. And, you know, I think we have a pretty good high batting rate. I think Jeff, there's like this this thing called the tracking board, and they put out like a list, and I think Jeff had the highest batting average in terms of projects that got set up versus projects he took out essentially and we're very judicious about only taking material that we feel is a good reflection on the company and is is marketable or or at the very least is a great read i had a bunch of scripts in the blacklist uh, last year and you know not all of them i think are necessarily scripts that could get made they're just really good scripts that i think people would be interested to read things like a biopic of stephen king or a bio biopic of donald trump and kind of his rise to success essentially in the 1970s things that are kind of fascinating to read but maybe not necessarily a move that could ever get made either because of marketplace or, or legal issues while it's obviously hard to generalize about what works in a marketplace as fluid and shape-shifting as the one that screenwriters find themselves in i wondered how john broke things down when assessing the wide range of scripts that come his way so the way I see it, there's basically three kinds of screenplays that, that a person can write, putting kind of the three large buckets. The first screenplay, I would say, is that you write something that you believe you can sell to a studio. Those tend to be big franchise plays. So something like Infinite, which Ian Shore wrote, is basically structured to be an $80 million or more movie. It's in the vein of the of Wanted. It's in the vein of The Matrix. in the vein of, the, of Kingsman. It's a big action-adventure movie with franchise potential. There are cases where I've sold scripts to studios uh, or set them up like Blonde Ambition or Capsule that were not at that level, but the majority of movies that, that studios put out at this point are $80 million or more. Um, that's not that's not news to anybody, but it's a practical reality. So what I tell people is unless you have an idea for a movie that is $80 million or more, don't bank on it being a studio movie. It doesn't mean that it can't be, but just don't necessarily bank on that, you know? The second kind of bucket, as it were, the second category is what I would call financier movies. And those would essentially be $15 million budgets or less. Obviously, there are independent movies made for more than $15 million, but they tend to be the exception, not the rule. And those are still, I would say, high concept, you know, 
a lot of true life stories. What people are really looking for, what I've heard from people is the marketplace is like grounded sci-fi, by which I mean something in the vein of like limitless or source code. Something that has a sci-fi edge but is producible. You know, not everyone can afford to do Valerian. Uh, independent of the system. So I would say there is that bucket, the under $15 million bucket. And then I would say there's the blacklist bucket, which is essentially writing a screenplay that you know can never get made or you don't think it could get made. I mean, like there's stuff like the script called Bubbles, which topped the blacklist in 2015. And that was about Michael Jackson's uh, chimpanzee. And that's now getting made as an animated movie by Netflix. So like, but I don't know that they ever expected it would ever get made because if I told you I'm writing a screenplay about Michael Jackson's chimpanzee, you'd be like, well, at least people want to read it. You know, you wouldn't think that it would ever kind of happen, but they got a great director, Taika Waititi. Um, Dan Harmon, I believe, is producing it. So, like, a great team, and, and you know, kudos to them. Um, you know, I know Lee Stobie, who's the manager, and producing it, and that's phenomenal work, you know. It's not a script that, personally, if I would ever think would get made, but, hey, you know, it worked, which is great. Those are kind of more attention-getter scripts. I've been involved in a few of those. I'll put it like this. The spec market, it's very hard to sell a screenplay nowadays. I think everyone would agree with that. Certainly from when I joined the industry, there were scripts selling for a million bucks every couple of weeks. I mean, that sounds insane, but it was a reality um, at the time. But uh, nowadays, they rarely sell. And so if scripts are rarely selling, how do you get attention for your clients? How do you get people to read them? Well, you get them to read by developing a screenplay that's about a really interesting topic that people are excited about. So if you develop a screenplay about, just to use the three examples of the scripts that I personally had the blacklist this year, a script about Madonna or a script about Stephen King or a script about Donald Trump, those are really interesting topics that people are intrigued about. You will likely never sell those screenplays, but people will be interested to read it. And getting people to want to read your screenplay over like the other 12 screenplays they have to read that weekend, because no joke, executives go home every weekend with like 8 to 10 to 12 screenplays to read. So why are they going to read your screenplay? Well, they're going to read it if it sounds like a good time, if it sounds like fun. So if you're a nobody screenwriter, I, I think it's a good idea to write something really different, really interesting, really cool. And maybe you break the odds and kind of like Blonde Ambition or like Linda and Monica or Bubbles, you end up getting traction, despite being not necessarily the most obvious down the middle superhero-esque kind of movie, you know? So, but that would simply be something I would be an attention getter kind of screenplay. That would not be something you would necessarily think you could sell. If you're an up-and-coming writer, you're looking at all the exciting stuff being done in television and the fact that feature specs don't sell very much anymore, you're probably like, oh, TV's where the exciting stuff is going on. And I think that might be why there might not be as many interesting spec screenplays in the marketplace because a lot of people are moving towards television. A screenplay means nothing nowadays. I think it's I think that's a mistake personally. I think if you can get into a screenplay and get it at a lower amount of money early on, that's a smart move. But people nowadays, they don't want to option a script for 10 grand. They'd rather wait until Tom Hardy and Ryan Gosling are attached to it and pay half a million dollars for it, you know? The problem with that is Ryan Gosling and Tom Hardy could drop out at any point. Then he paid half a million dollars for a screenplay he could have gotten for ten grand. So people don't want to put the sweat equity anymore. They just want to go for the sure thing. And I, I think that's a I think that's personally a mistake. But you know that's that's how the marketplace is. A bit of quick additional background for those not so familiar with the projects that John mentions here. Blonde Ambition, that Madonna biopic, was written by Elise Hollander, who also happens to be married to John. Her script, which details the singer's efforts to navigate fame, romance, and the dismissive attitude of the music industry during the early 80s, topped the 2016 blacklist after receiving 49 votes from among the 250 executives voting. As a comparative gauge, among the projects that tied for second that year, with 35 votes, was Liz Hanna's The Post, 
which was subsequently sold to Amy Pascal as the basis for Steven Spielberg's upcoming film The Papers, starring Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, in a story that centres on the Washington Post decision to publish the classified Pentagon Papers in 1971. Linda and Monica, one of the other blacklist scripts mentioned by John, is another political story ripped from recent history that speaks to current events. It charts the bizarre relationship between Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp, a civil servant who secretly taped and leaked the phone recordings that led to impeachment hearings for President Bill Clinton. That was sold to Amazon Studios. Given the sales success of these films, I asked John how far writers can push the creativity of their speculative scripts before they become too uncommercial. You know, I think the two things actually go hand in hand. They're not necessarily as separate as they might appear. You know, uh, when I was at NYU, uh, Tony Gilroy came into my class, and actually before The Born Identity and before Michael Clayton, and he said, you know, my job as a writer is to get you to turn the page. And I honestly believe that's that's my job is to facilitate that. And I want the screenplays that I'm involved in for my clients to be really fun reads. I want people to want to turn the page and just be like, oh man, what what happens next? That governs all else that is the most important thing beyond anything beyond market considerations anything is getting you to turn the page and having you have an enjoyable read i do think market considerations uh, play into that because i may not be as likely to push a western because i know that people don't want to read westerns anymore because they feel like it's a genre that plays is played out doesn't feel as relevant as it used to be blah 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 but you know if i heard the right western idea i'd be like let's do it now I'm developing a, a musical idea now. Obviously, La La Land was huge, but like for me, this musical idea that I'm playing around with is, feels very unique and fresh. I'm not necessarily the world's biggest musical fan, but like it's a cool idea. I think the market instinct and the creative instinct are one and the same. It's it's rare that I'm like, oh wow, that's an idea that I love, but that'll no one would ever want to read that because. If I want to read it, I have to assume other people want to read it, and it'll be good for the writer's career. Now, I want to set their expectations uh, properly, where if it's something like a script of Donald Trump, there's, it's likely never going to get made, but it'll get a lot. It'll get them an agent. It'll get a lot of people reading them, might get them on the blacklist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as they're aware of that, they're not getting ready to mortgage their house or something, then that's great. It's a market consideration in the sense of like, I'm like, hey, we're not going to sell this, but it's going to help advance your career. So as long as you're aware of that, that's great. But if there have been like 20 other Donald Trump scripts in the marketplace, if like if it was today, I probably wouldn't develop that Donald Trump script that we took out in like March 2016 because it would feel like it was oh, at that point. It's, it's not as topical, bizarrely. And so it's all about what feels right for the moment, what feels fresh and current of the moment. Now, bear in mind, it can take six months to sometimes a year to get a screenplay done. If I'm developing a screenplay right now, I'm trying to imagine what's it going to be like in 2018, theoretically. If I started developing something today, chances are I wouldn't take it out till like February of 2018 because January doesn't work because of Sundance. So I'm like, okay, is this going to be a, the right script for February 2018? I don't know, but I have to go by what I see is up and coming in the marketplace. So at the end of the day, I would say my goal is always to get people to want to read my screenplays. Whether that's saleable or not is is a separate matter. But I would say the marketplace is less to me about can I sell this or not, um, although that's always the preferred goal. It's more like, do people want to read this or not? Do I want to read this? If I was an executive, would I want to read this? Would I find this an entertaining read? If entertaining reads are what John looks for when developing screenplays for the marketplace, I wondered what characteristics John looks for when taking on writers as a client to develop their careers. It's a little hard to quantify. I would just say 
the first thing I look for is a strong and clear voice. Honestly, dialogue is most important. If the dialogue's not grabbing me, the rest of it doesn't 100% matter. I'll put it like this. It's rare that you find amazing description and bad dialogue. So more often than not, if the dialogue is great, the description is probably pretty good. It's rare that you could write one, but you couldn't write the other, you know? Um, but I would say dialogue is probably one of the most important things that I look at. It's a simple question. Am I enjoying reading this? Am I hooked in? If I'm feeling something reading it, then I, I tend to listen to that. I would say the first 15 pages are phenomenally important. The first five pages are phenomenally important. If I'm not hooked in by the first five to seven pages, I don't know if I'm going to keep reading, especially if it's just a random script that I saw on the blacklist or something like that. If it's a, someone recommended to me, I'll probably read more like this. If I'm not hooked in by the writing by the first 10 to 15 pages, then how can I expect anybody else to be hooked in? Because they don't have the investment in it that I would have. I would say dialogue is really important. Does it feel like their person has a strong command of what they want to say or does it feel generic? I'll tell you what I'm, my kind of bet noir is, is let's say someone's being arrested. It'll be like cop number one, cop number two. I'm like, oh, great. You know, like you couldn't even give the cops certain. It couldn't even be like angry cop or like fat cop or whatever. It has to be like cop number one. You look for things like that. Does this person feel like they, they have a voice and a clear command of what they're doing? That's really the number one thing I look for in a screenplay. If it's there, then I'll jump on the phone with them and, and get to know them a little bit. And then when I get on the phone with them, it's like, okay, are they realistic about what they want to do with their career? Are they collaborative? Do they seem very hard-headed and stubborn? Which happens more often than you would think. Uh, it's like funny. It's like the less successful someone has been sometimes, the longer they've been working at, the, the, the less they're interested in hearing any of your thoughts or ideas. Which is funny because they're the people generally who reached out to you. But what are you going to do? Uh, here's a little note to anybody. If you want to have a manager, uh, show that you're a good collaborator. That doesn't mean, by the way, that when I say, hey, I think this, you're like, yes, you're right. That's completely the right idea. You can be like, you know what? I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I see what you're going for. So what about this? That's great. You have a point of view. But if you just are like, nah, or that's not how I do it or whatever, well, you know, why are you coming to me if you're so successful? Why are, you come, why are you asking for my opinion? Here's the thing. The things that make a writer a, a strong client is great writing. Obviously, that's the first thing that gets you in the room. The second thing is an attitude. Do you have a good attitude? Do you want to work with you? If people are going to hire you, they're going to have to work with you for six months, nine months, sometimes years. You know, Do they want to be in the room with you and give you notes and feel like you're going to listen to them? Because if they feel like you're not going to listen to them, then they're not going to get the job in the first place. And I would say the last note is drive. Is this person a driven person? Do they actually want to be a writer? A lot of people write scripts as like a hobby. And then you were like, oh, well, do you want to make this a career? They're like, oh, yeah. But they don't really have the drive in it. They're like they have one idea in them essentially. And you're looking for someone who has multiple ideas, who has a clear vision of their career. And, you know, that's, that's rarer than you would think. You know, a lot of people are kind of one and dones. And then you can tell that when you meet them in the room. And you're like, no, this is not a person I can build a career with. So those are kind of the three things. You look for talent, attitude, and drive. Those are the three things that, are, that I find very important from potential clients. Since John's entire life revolved around evaluating screenplays and taking meetings with both clients and prospective buyers, I had to ask him how on earth he juggles his time. Is there any left in his life to actually watch stuff in theaters and on television? Here's the John Zelzerny secret. I have a very specific way of doing things. I don't know if anybody else does it this way. It's not like I copyrighted it, so I tell everybody. I, I'm very open about all my methods because they're they're not secret or anything. So if I get a script in today from a client, what I'll do is I'll be like, okay, let's have a phone call about this next Tuesday, depending on what my schedule is, obviously. Next Tuesday, next Wednesday. I, the moment I get a screenplay in or an outline, 
in from a client, I set the call immediately, and then I'll read the screenplay a day or so before the meeting. So, like, I have, like, a meeting tomorrow, and, like, I have to finish reading a screenplay for it. Um, so I read all the stuff the night before. It drives my wife insane because essentially there's always about an hour or so of me for reading for me to do. Because what a lot of people will do, they're like, I get a screenplay on Tuesday. Cool, I'll read it this weekend. They read it this weekend. And then on Monday, they email the client be like, okay, cool, let's have a call on Friday or the week after. So the client is sitting there for two weeks waiting for the read. This way, I cut the client kind of sitting time for like to about a week. It kind of is crazy to wait until the weekend to set the call because like I know I'm going to talk to the client about it regardless. It's not like I'm going to read the screenplay and be like, hey, man, no call. Not going to happen. You know, I don't do the typical weekend read where I read all the scripts of the week in, in one day. I read every, almost everything a day or so. I might read it two days in advance, but that's the, the farthest out I'm going to do. It's also like if I read it the day before or two days before, it's very fresh in my mind. If I if I read something on a Sunday, I don't talk about it till Friday. I'm going to it's going to be a little tricky for me to remember what the hell I thought about it. Obviously, I write down notes in the document about what I thought. If it's the night before or two nights before, it's a lot fresher. I never have to read 12 scripts in one night, but I never have a night other than like Friday or Saturday where I don't have to read. So it's kind of like a double-edged sword. A good script takes more time than a bad script. A bad script, I can read 10 pages and be like, okay, no, and pass. Whereas a good screenplay, I need to sit down and actually focus on it and really read it as a submission. So those ones tend to take a little bit longer. Sometimes my weekend reading, if I don't have a bunch of meetings on Monday, will be like 45 minutes because I'll read through like four submissions and I'll all be bad. And so that'll only take me like half an hour because I'm like first 10 pages of each, right? But if they're good, if I have three or four scripts that are good, well, that's like a two to three hours because I actually got to read the screenplays. As John has alluded to already, there are a number of online platforms out there that are now helping the film industry sift through the huge volume of unproduced screenplays submitted each year. The Tracking Board, The Blacklist, The Bloodlist, Spec Scout, and Slated are among those that try to quantify the wealth of written material out there to provide some kind of comparative ranking. Some publish hit lists based on industry polling. A few keep running tabs on what's being sold, and still others provide script coverage hiring teams of readers to analyze screenplays according to standardized evaluation systems. At their best, these services help writers determine when their scripts are ready to send out, and they also steer industry executives like John in deciding which screenplays on that endless pile of promising hopefuls to read first. I asked him to what extent these data-derived services help him and the industry at large. You know, it used to be if you didn't live in L.A., it was very, very difficult to get people to take your, your scripts seriously. And so I think the blacklist.com has been very, very helpful in, in kind of making the world a bit flatter, essentially. Um, and I would imagine Slate is, operates in a similar sense where it doesn't 100% require that you live in Los Angeles. And so I think anything that moves towards that is always an excellent kind of thing. Um, I, you know, I'm a little skeptical, to be honest with you, of any kind of metrics or algorithms that will solve our industry. Um, if it was that easy, we'd already be doing it. But, you know, I mean, I think information is always incredibly helpful. I, I, I know a few of the guys who work at Slated and they're very smart, diligent people who are very much about, you know, information is freedom. We all use the information to like look and be like, okay, what's working in the marketplace? What things are getting good reactions? What are, what are people looking for? And I think that's ideal. And 
in a weird way, the more information that's out there, the better decisions that can be made. You know, at a certain point, we're all humans and we all have, we like what we like and we don't like what we don't like and we're, we're bound by that. But I think the more information you have at your fingertips and the more availability you have to other people, that's great. What more can you ask for that kind of leaves out, you know, intermediaries who can sometimes have their own agendas or miscommunication? The, if I want to know what you're thinking, it's great if I can say, hey, what are you thinking? Uh, as opposed to having to ask someone what you think, you know, and they'll tell me their spin on what you think. Talk to those intermediaries and they will tell you, of course, that they actually enhance the value of projects precisely by withholding or manipulating information in order to manufacture desire. If everybody simply operates by the same set of numbers, a perfect marketplace in other words, then their ability to stir up an auction fever around material is diminished just as is the case with Wall Street arbitrage, where money is made by exploiting the differential between purchase and sales price, the film business exploits the difference between value and worth. That's how intermediaries earn their fees. Oh, of course. That's their value. Well, it's like an agent. It's like an agent, right? Like, look, there are some great agents out there, but what do agents really do but act as intermediaries? I'm sure they would say the same thing about managers, by the way. I'll put it like this. Agents are more, much more highly respected than people who are selling you a car. Do you know what I'm saying? And yet, in a certain way, it's kind of the same stuff. The agent didn't design the screenplay. They didn't build it. They're not going to make it a better screenplay. They're simply selling it to you. They're acting as an intermediary. And so foreign salespeople are the same. They're saying, okay, I can get you $10 million for this in the world, right? Really? Who the hell knows? They think they can. And I think the value of foreign sales agents are people who say, we can get you 10 million and they get you 10 million. A lot of people out there who say, we'll get you 10 million and they get you five. And they go, oh, I don't know. Um, looks like it wasn't a good enough screenplay or something. Consistency is what was kind of valued. By the way, that would be a really fascinating uh, dynamic. Uh, you could never get him to agree to it. But what the foreign sales agent told them and what actually they delivered on. That would be a disruptive metric that you will never, ever, ever get, but it'd be phenomenal. One of the constant complaints leveled against all those who finance films, either directly or through loans and pre-sales guarantees, is that their choices are inherently conservative. They seek out the comfort of the tried and the tested, even knowing that audiences seek the excitement of the new and never seen before. Now, that's the problem is they're not risk takers as a general rule. They are very much, and I get it, they're almost like small business owners. They're like, I want the sure thing. The problem is the sure thing is not always the sure thing. It's like, well, the stuff that has always been done a million times, it's maybe not going to work. I mean, I think at a certain budget level, it always does. But like, they are looking for the thing that's been done before successfully, but that is also the reason why it may not be successful, you know, because it, it is so generic. They tend a little bit more towards the safe thing. The problem is the safe thing can sometimes be the boring thing, which means the unprofitable thing. But like, I get it. It's not my money. So it's easy for me to say, you know, do you want to invest in Black Swan or do you want to invest in Speed Racer? It's like, well, I'm going to go with the one from the Wachowski brothers. It's based on a global IP and has a $200 million budget. Let's go with that one. Not with like the rando, you know, weird ballet movie. But one of those made $350 million worldwide and the other one, I don't think even made 100 it's hard to kind of get too righteous about the whole thing just because like I get it. It's like people are taking chances. People are putting their money into it. And you want to put your money into the sure thing, into the blue chip stock. You know, the problem is, unfortunately, we're dealing with creative business. At a certain point, you got to take you got to take chances, you know, um, but I get it. You know, I mean, look, this all goes back to, I think, a very simple idea 
which is, you know, you have to do the thing that you believe in. Because that way, if you fail, you'd be like, well, at least I did the version I believe in. And where if you do the thing that other people are telling you to do that you don't believe in, when it fails, if it fails, then you'll be like, you said it would succeed. And they're like, and you're just mad at yourself. You know, you've got to do the thing that you believe in. Now, that doesn't mean don't be aware of its chances. Don't write the thing. You're like, I'm going to write a Western with an ensemble cast. It's great for Quentin Tarantino, but like for everybody else, it's probably not going to happen. But if you're aware of that and you're like, look, I don't care what happens. I just want to write this thing because I believe in it. Then great. But if you write it thinking it's going to sell for like $20 million or whatever, well, then you're probably in for a disappointment. You've been listening to John Zazzoni give a welcome reality check on how screenwriters should best approach the marketplace if they want to keep making a living coming up with great stories. In an industry that trades on selling dreams, particularly dreams of overnight success, there are clearly a lot of delusional expectations that need to be managed. As John points out, it is often the writers who have been toiling away fruitlessly for a decade who are the ones who are least receptive to professional advice. They're the ones telling him, no, that's not how things are done. And to a certain degree, you can understand where some of that stubborn-headed skepticism is coming from. One of the persistent themes of this entire podcast series so far has been the constant tension between creating something that you think will excite audiences and creating something that will excite the industry gatekeepers that pay for all that creativity. In theory, there shouldn't be much of a gap between those two since gatekeepers ought to be highly sensitized to audience needs. But in practice, of course, as soon as upfront money is needed, decision-making can turn into an exercise in risk management and business calculation. Intuition and ingenuity can quickly get eclipsed. Which is why it is gratifying to hear that as a literary manager, John has a more expansive, longer-term view of commercial considerations. He will always tell his clients that if they really believe in something, they should write it, no matter what. He might point out that the idea is a hard sell, but as long as that client is aware of the marketplace conditions, he or she will have his full encouragement. All he asks for is that they write the best and most interesting version of that idea. Having unrealistic notions of what a screenplay might sell for is bad enough, but writing boring, generic material is unacceptable. The first rule of writing, remember, is make the reader turn the page. Well, I'll leave it there on that cliffhanger for this week. Tune in soon again to Filmonomics are slated for more universal insights about the film trade. And if the stars align for you, please remember to leave a review on our iTunes podcast homepage. page.